are going to be looking at four different stories in the Bible. If you've got a Bible or you've got the Bible on your phone, you might want to find John chapter 12. That's where we're going to kick off today. Um, I prepared quite a long talk and I've just gone through it and gone... <laughs> Don't need to say that. Don't need to say that. We'll see how we go. Um... I've called this talk Encountering the Risen Jesus. As you know, we're coming up to the season of uh, Easter, uh, which is kind of the most important celebration in our calendar as Christians. Um, in the world's eyes, you probably don't think that because they tend to put more of a, sort of make more of a fuss of Christmas really, but actually Easter's so key and so vital. Do you want to stick the first slide up for me, guys? Thank you. And uh, next week, next Sunday is Easter Day, and we'll be thinking about, uh, all through next weekend, we'll be thinking about the story of Easter, reflecting on the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday, and celebrating his resurrection next Sunday. And as Joe said, the Easter encounter is just another opportunity to come and really walk through that story and reflect on that. And in our last series, which was called Surprised by Hope, um, we looked and talked at, at length about the significance of Jesus' resurrection, the fact that this man would die and rise from the dead. And the, few, the hope that that brings us and the whole world for now and for the future. And so today what I want to do is I want to drill down to what that hope meant for three particular disciples. Three of the disciples of Jesus, people who were close to him. And what happened to them after the resurrection and how their encounter with the resurrected Jesus impacted them. I kind of want to set the scene, though, by just starting to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday, which uh, is, if you're in a, uh, a church where they do the church calendar, this would be um, the, the day that we would be celebrating Palm Sunday. It's the week before Easter, and um, it's the day when, uh, when, when we celebrate that. We'll come to that in just a second, but I just want to say, wherever you are today... Wherever you're at in your faith, whether you're somebody who has believed in Jesus for a long time and followed him for many years, or whether you're somebody who actually wouldn't call yourself a Christian at this point, and maybe you're just somebody who's, who's trying to find out a bit more, or on a journey, or interested in exploring faith, wherever you're at in that, um, I just want to, first of all, I want to say welcome and thank you for coming. I, I feel that there's something in this for everyone. That each story shows a particular encounter with Jesus and how it was absolutely transformational. And in this church, as you've probably already gathered, we believe that um, when we meet Jesus, it makes all the difference. That encountering Jesus and his risen life, you know, it, 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 it transforms us. In fact, we're praying that that happens today. Many of you would say that you've experienced that already this morning. So today is the day when, uh, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, um, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the story can be found in John, it can be found in all the Gospels actually, but I want to read it from John chapter 12, um, verses 12 to 16. Um, if you've been around church any time or you've been to Sunday school, you'll probably know this story. The next day, chapter 12, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's the feast of the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches so they took bunches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even he, king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and what had been done to him. 
You see, Jesus and his followers are coming to Jerusalem for a Passover festival. This is something that they would have done every year, along with all kinds of people from right across the nation. Okay, Jerusalem was the sort of spiritual home, the center. It was the place where the, the temple was. So everybody would come for the Passover. Crowds would have been following Jesus. In fact, crowds have been following Jesus pretty much everywhere he's been, and particularly in this journey up towards Jerusalem. Not just his regular disciples but a bunch of others who he's picked up along the way. I mean, we know that at one point Jesus sent out at least 72 people. So there are a bunch of stuff. There are a bunch of people. And then something happened. Um, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm pretty sure word of that got around. And so there's, there's, there's a kind of, you know, there's a whole crowd of people who are caught up in a momentum of this campaign, who are caught up in Jesus' journey, who are shouting and singing. They're calling Hosanna, Blessed is he. They're calling out words from the Old Testament that talk about and look forward to this a promised Messiah. And to be honest, this crowd are in need of a Messiah. They really need something to happen. I was in the privileged position of going to a football match yesterday. It doesn't happen very often, but I took my son to see Bournemouth versus Chelsea. There was some crowd in need of a Messiah there as well. <laughs> and they kind of shouting a lot of things some of which aren't repeatable <laughs> there's a lot of uh, worship going on at football matches I don't know if you've noticed that um, this crowd are waving palm branches not flags or scarves but palm branches and palm branches are a, a symbol a national political symbol for Israel so this crowd are probably thinking yep he's the Messiah from the Old Testament we've heard those words they're part of our culture you know, the Hosanna and the blessed is he and the, and the, the, the one who, he's the one who rides on a colt, on a donkey. That's a direct quote from the Old Testament. But as well as that, I think this crowd, are, 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 think that this guy's going to be a political messiah. A revolutionary leader who is going to overthrow the occupying Roman army. And seize power in Jerusalem, which is, perhaps that's the only kind of messiah they can really conceive of. And they're caught up on this wave of optimism as Jesus rides this wave in. And, and he comes in and they're like, yes, you're the king, you're the king. Even though he's on a donkey, which is a bit weird, and with a bunch of fishermen in tow. So it's not like he's on chariots and horses with a whole army of people. There's something, there's always something they just don't get about Jesus. But nevertheless, there's a party atmosphere, he's at the centre of it. I don't know if you've ever experienced that yourself. I find that it can be, even perhaps in church, it can be easy to get swept up in the emotion of a situation, caught up with the momentum of a crowd even when we perhaps don't always know fully what's going on. And the key verse for us here, there's plenty more to say, I could say about that, but I've jumped off it. And the key verse here is, from, is in verse 16, which is where, and this is where I want to go from, use this as a sort of point to move on to the next part, which is where, Jesus, where it says, Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first, but only later, and don't forget, this was written down sort of, 30, 40, 50 years after the event. So in hindsight, they're able to write and tell the story. But the writer, John, was honest enough to say, we didn't really get what was going on. Only on reflection afterwards were we able to work out the significance of what Jesus had said and what he'd done and what it actually meant. And that's the disciples. That's not the big crowd who were just caught up in the moment. That's the 12 or more disciples who've been following him around, basically eating, sleeping, living with him for three years. They've watched Jesus do incredible stuff. They've been part of doing it themselves. 
And yet they still, there's parts about, there's stuff about Jesus they just don't get. I wonder how many of us have been around Jesus and his people, and yet sometimes we still don't see what's going on fully. Can you relate to that? I can. I can relate to that. I wonder how many of us can. Sometimes it's only after a really tricky time that we work out what we're learning and what he's trying to teach us. Maybe you're in the middle of a faith journey right now. Perhaps you need an encounter with Jesus like one of the ones we're going to talk about. Because something did transform these guys. I mean, they were a bunch of scared disciples, especially after Jesus was crucified. I mean, they just disappeared. They transformed into these scared disciples who didn't really know what was going on into bold leaders who started a worldwide movement of the church. Preaching and teaching boldly with confidence, many of them martyred for their faith. Something changed them. Some sort of personal encounter, specific encounter. And I want to look at three of those encounters. I want to look at three of those encounters, just moving on. And the first one I want to look at, I'm going to paint pictures of each one. I'm going to read you a few verses from each one. So we're going to jump around a bit. We're going to go to Luke 24. Because I want to look at the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So if you want to follow in. You see, let's fast forward now. That was all the week before Easter. Now we're moving to the time after Easter. It's after the Easter weekend. Jesus has died and been buried. It was a bit anticlimax. It's all over. Except that his body has gone missing. And there are a few people who are claiming that they've seen him alive. Now, we just think, oh yeah, we've read that story a hundred times, but just think about that for a minute. No one's really sure. And let's pick up the story in Luke 24, and I'm going to read from verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them, two of the disciples, doesn't say, it says who one of them is, it doesn't say who the other one is. Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in the last few days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. And here's the key verse. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition to that, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They came and they said they've seen this vision of angels. We've just talked about this. Some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. So some people are claiming to have seen him. Verse 25, he says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he started to explain to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I'm going to stop there. The rest of the story is that they continue to go and as they get to their village where they're going to rest, he looks as if he's going to go on and they say, no, 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 stay with us, stay with us. You can't go on, you can't travel at night, it's dangerous. So they welcome him in, he invites them, they invite him in and uh, he, they just sit down to eat together and he starts to break bread and as he breaks bread, they suddenly go, oh, it's you! At which point he kind of disappears. 
And they go, wow, that was Jesus we were with all day. And they turn around and having walked all day, they just decide to run all the way back to tell the apostles what has happened. These two, probably typical of most of the disciples, were crushed, defeated and completely lost in disappointment and in sadness. They just hadn't got it. I mean, so much so that when they did encounter the risen Jesus, they didn't even recognize him. I mean, it's common to many accounts, actually, of people who met with Jesus after he rose again, that they didn't realize who he was at first. There's something about resurrection bodies. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But they were experiencing all of this disappointment. And Jesus, in disguise, he says, well, you just don't get it. And he starts to take them through the scriptures. Don't you realize, he is saying, that all of these things that are talked about in your scriptures, all of that is pointing towards this and me. Or him, because he's not giving away who he is. All of this is foretold. The death and resurrection of the Messiah are foretold in the Old Testament. It's meant to happen. They didn't get it. They'd read the scriptures, but they hadn't got this. Tom Wright said something about this. Cleopas's puzzled statement only needs the slightest twist to turn it into a joyful statement of early Christian faith. Cleopas says, they crucified him, but we had hoped he would redeem Israel. And shortly what this becomes is, they crucified him, and that is how he did redeem Israel. Do you get me? It was the resurrection that made the difference, of course. But these guys are just, they're not far from the truth. It's only one couple of word changes. But they just couldn't see it until this encounter with Jesus. Maybe some of us have been coming to church for some time. And we really love being around God's people. Maybe we love to worship him. We love to get to know him better. We even quite like the people in the church around us. We know that Jesus is certainly fun to be around, but there's something not clicking. The Bible, yes, it can be hard to understand. Jesus' way of doing things is incredibly countercultural. I mean, if you're really trying to follow Jesus, you will do things differently to how most of our culture tries to do them. And yes, we need to look at the Bible, we need to read it and interpret it and understand it. Maybe you've heard it all being explained and it sounds great in theory, but there's something that you just don't feel. Or it's just something not right. Maybe there's an underlying disappointment because there's some part of our life that's lacking in hope. And we just can't see a way forward. Maybe there's an area of our lives, and Mark just kind of prayed into this, that we just haven't touched into yet. Or Jesus hasn't touched into yet. You see, I think that Jesus is probably walking alongside many of us closer than we think. He's just waiting for us to recognize and engage him. Maybe he just wants to reveal more of who he is to us. I'm, I, and I think about this and think, well, isn't that a bit obtuse? Isn't that a bit weird? Just, I'm, I'm here, but you can't see me. It's like he's playing a game. But then I play games with my kids. Sometimes I try and get my kids' attention, and I don't go and get up and get in their faces about it, because I want to draw them away from what they're thinking about into, some other relation, into, another, into a relationship with me in a different space. Do, do you know what I'm saying? I think that's a relational thing to do. And when they realized what was happening, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us on that road? We knew something was up. We just couldn't put our finger on what it was. It was further, that it went, it went beyond just simply explaining the Bible. This was an, and, and it was when they started to break bread in the relational context that they suddenly go, of course, that's what it is. You're Jesus. Sounds obvious, doesn't it? Sounds silly. But 
I just think that it's when we make time to simply be with Jesus and get into a relational context with him. That sounds very scientific, doesn't it? We just get into a relational context with Jesus now. When we just be with him, that's when he gets close. That's when he can instill his peace and his life and his hope. So if, if there are things that are just not, you're just not getting, I'd really encourage you to look for ways to change your focus or priorities and somehow just find some more relationship time with him. Now, I know that's hard when things are tough, and I don't know about you, but I go through quite an unhealthy cycle sometimes when my things aren't going well and my mood is slipping, or I make bad choices, I give in to temptation. I, I, kind of, I then kind of think, well, what I really need now is a relational context. No, I don't think it like that. But you know, what, what I really need now is to be with Jesus. What I really feel now is like I should be closer to Jesus. But can I get that... Can I make that step? Well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes, honestly, no, I, don't, I, don't, I can't. Because sometimes it's easier to stick with my own negative feelings and maybe the shame or the unworthiness that I feel. Maybe I've shouted at the kids or eaten too much. And yet he's just there. He's just there. The truth is he's so close. And he's so gracious and he just longs to be with me. And what a transformation in those guys. What a transformation. Let's look at another one. They're not all going to be as long as that, I promise you. Um, Because uh, the next one is Thomas. Sometimes called Doubting Thomas. Which is a little bit unfair, I think. But See, Jesus has appeared. The context of this story, and we're going back to John, by the way. We're going back to um, John chapter 20. It's there. Um, The context of this story is that Jesus has appeared to his disciples... He's come and he's shown them his hands and he's shown them his side. He's met with them. But Thomas happened not, he wasn't there. So they've all gone to him and said, hey Thomas, it's it's true. The rumours are true. He really is alive. We've seen him. And we pick up the story in John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin actually, was not with them when Jesus first came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, unless I see his hands in the mark of his nails... And I place my finger into that mark and then place my hand into his side. I will not believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's probably an understatement, isn't it? Can you imagine? You're just sitting there. Jesus appears. I'd be freaking out. (laughs) What? Peace be with you. Calm down. It's all right. Keep keep calm and listen. (laughs) Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hands and place them in my side. Don't disbelieve, believe. And Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. And the dialogue goes on. I just want to focus on that. But you see, if you could meet the risen Jesus in the flesh, what questions would you have for him? I mean, you'd want to know if it really was him, right? I mean, you'd want to see the scars, wouldn't you? Otherwise, how are you going to believe that it's really him? How many people do you know who have big questions for Jesus? Big questions of life and death. And this, this story is often painted in negative light. And I'm borrowing some ideas from a guy called Greg Thompson here. But it, it's as if it's unrealistic to even express a doubt or a question. Even about something so significant as a man who was most definitely dead... And somehow now seems to be alive. I mean, wouldn't you have a question about that? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it just happened, fine. 
I mean, it's not like that happens all the time, is it? And it's not in this passage, but we do know that Thomas was a believer and a follower of Jesus. He was definitely part of the disciples' crowd. So even though his question comes over as a bit of a harsh statement, I mean, I think he's painted in a really grumpy light here. Well, unless I believe, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe. I think underneath that must have been some genuine questions. I mean, his real question must have been something like this. Is it really possible to see life come from death? Is that really possible? Thomas didn't say, well, you've seen Jesus. Where is he? He didn't say, well, he showed himself to you. Why didn't he come to me? It wasn't, didn't feel like it was a self-centered thing. It wasn't that. Thomas wanted to see the scars, I think, to be sure that death has really become life. I don't think it's that Thomas didn't get it. I think it's that Thomas really did get it. Don't you see? I'm going to rephrase this question. Don't you see? And I realize I'm putting words into his mouth here. But I think it could have been something like this. Don't you see that if this is true, it's not just great for us because we've got our friend back. This changes everything and impacts the whole world. A God who has truly experienced death and has beaten it and come alive again must be worth following. Is this, Thomas is saying, is this really what's happened? He understood that the only way this could have made, had any meaning was if it was actually true. And I can see and feel that like so many others will need to. How many people do you know who have experienced incredible grief, death, loss and pain? I mean, we've all experienced that ourselves and many of us know people. People who can't even contemplate the idea of God because of their grief and death and pain. Well, if he is real, how could he even identify with what I'm feeling? And those questions turn to cynicism or they turn to kind of just emotional backing off and just shallowness and hollowness. How does this God even know how I feel? I think Thomas is getting in touch with a bit of that. And Jesus answers him so graciously. He doesn't in any way chastise him for his so-called doubt. He totally understands what's going on for Thomas. And he gives a simple and gracious yes. He basically says, I hear you. I hear your questions. And here are my replies. And he's got four replies. And the first one is, yes, you can see my hands. Here they are. Number two is, yes, you can put your finger in the nail marks. Carry on. And the third answer is, yes, you can put your hand inside the wound in my side. And the fourth answer is, you can believe now. It is all true. And he's saying even more than that, isn't he? He's saying, I've borne your death and I've secured your life. I mean, how many people do you let touch your scars? That's a fairly intimate thing to ask somebody to do. I've borne your death. It's okay. I did this for you and for everybody else. And I've secured your life. You can be at peace. These scars aren't cold, dead scars. He's a warm, alive person. Now, I put this picture up because um, this is a picture by a guy called Karl Bloch, who's a Danish, paint, Danish painter from the 1800s. And this is just one of quite a lot of scenes from the life of Jesus that he painted. And if you're of a certain 
age and stage, you may have had a Bible that had some of these pictures in them. And the guy who I heard speak about this, from whom I borrowed some of these ideas, he said, I grew up with this picture of Thomas. And if you look at it, it's very cold, isn't it? I mean, it's quite fearful, actually. I don't think that this picture portrays the sense of grace or intimacy that we read about in that passage, which is a shame that it got used. And I think there's a much better example, which is this picture by an artist called Caravaggio from the 1600s, who's an Italian painter. And in this one, there is tenderness, and there is touching, and there is leaning in. And it seems to just much better portray the intimacy in this encounter. You know, our communities, our workplaces, even our families in some cases, are full of people with doubts and questions. It can be really easy to try and argue with the skeptics and the doubters, but we need to understand that people's questions are usually driven by pain. And often even our own doubts are coming from a place of pain and grief. And we need to, like Jesus also Thomas, be gentle with ourselves and be gentle with our neighbours. You know, the word compassion, it means entering into people's pain and feeling it with them and holding them there in that place. And we, as you know, are people of compassion. Jesus always treats people with questions very graciously and always gives them the space. And he gives us the same capacity to bear. I think that's what part of what it means when it says bear one another's burdens. To bear, to bear people's grief. To say, yep, it's okay that you feel this. Jesus feels it too. And if we do need to answer the questions, then we need to answer graciously. Something along the lines of, do you know the God I know has scars and knows what it's like to weep with me? He doesn't want to respond to questions with arguments. He responds with himself. And that encounter seemed to change Thomas forever. And unfortunately, we don't really know what happened to Thomas. There are all kinds of rumors um, they're, they're possible, but they're hard, they're hard to prove. Nobody really knows. But the rumors say that he was um, martyred about 20 years later because he basically went and pre- did the stuff and preached the gospel. And he traveled and preached the gospel. And some people think he got as far as India to preach the gospel. But it really made an impact. And the last one I want to look at briefly is Peter. Okay, so we've talked about Cleopas and the other disciple on the road, who we don't know who that is. We've talked about Thomas. The last one I want to talk about is Peter. You just see the, and we're going to go just to the next chapter, John 21, for this. The disciples had gone fishing. They didn't know what to do. Two of them had gone home, tried to go home to Emmaus. They're sitting around. What should we do? Well, we'll go back to fishing. So they're out on the shore. Oh, they're, sorry, they're out on the boat. Jesus appears on the shore. You probably know this story. He calls to them, hey, have you caught anything? I'm sure they're going, deja vu, deja vu. This has happened before. And he goes, put your net on the other side. And they pull it up and all the fish come out. And they go, hang on a minute. This is like when Jesus first called us three years ago. And Peter immediately twigs and goes, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. So leaving all the others to pull in the nets, he leaps out of the boat and swims to the shore. And they have breakfast together. And let's pick up the story in verse 15. When they finish breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, tend my sheep. He says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? 
And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. It's a little bit sinister at the end there, isn't it? By the way, you're going to die for this. Peter was probably a natural leader among the disciples. He was the biggest character. He was larger than life. He was often prone to opening his mouth and saying something before he'd really computed in the brain to think about what it was. I can relate to someone like that. I mean, he really loved Jesus. He'd been so close to Jesus. He was one of the three that Jesus invited into his sort of special intimate times. He invited him to pray in the garden. And Peter tried to fight the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus. He even managed to chop one of their ears off. But Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him. He said, you know, when I'm arrested, you're going to deny knowing me. And of course, Peter's into a big mouth. Oh, I'll never, I'll never deny you, God. I'll never deny you, Jesus. Not me, Lord, never. But actually, when the crunch came to it, that's exactly what happened. In the moment that Peter could have made his really brave and bold stand for Jesus, yes, I am the rock on which the church is going to be built. That's what he told me. What does he do? He completely messes it up and just goes, no, wasn't me. Don't know what you're talking about. So imagine how Peter is feeling now. I mean, Jesus is gone. He's probably consumed with fear and shame. He's probably, I don't know, just imagine. And then he's his reports of Jesus' resurrection. And he really would have wanted to believe those rumours. He really would have wanted to see Jesus again. But at the same time, he's going to be nervous because he knows he's going to have to come face to face and look Jesus in the eye and acknowledge his own weakness and his own outright cowardliness. How many times have we had to metaphorically look Jesus in the eye? Knowing that we've messed up, knowing that we've made a bad choice, knowing that we've sinned, knowing that we've hurt somebody, let somebody down, made a selfish decision, let Jesus down. What must that feel like to look at the perfect son of God in the eye? The one who would never let anyone down. The one who died for our sin, in fact. And so Jesus, after breakfast, takes Peter for this little walk. And remember, Peter has been the first, don't forget, to realize that Jesus was the Messiah. As I said just before, Peter, or Simon, so he started out as Simon. Jesus renamed him Peter because Peter means rock. And he'd said to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So he's had his kind of word from God. Jesus has already declared who, is, who he really is, his identity. Jesus has called him to be a kingdom minister, to be a church planter, to be a leader of others in the kingdom of God. And I reckon Peter is thinking about this and wondering if what he's done has completely ruined his life and disqualified him from ministry for the rest of his years he probably wouldn't have used those words but you you know what I mean and what does Jesus do Simon do you love me yes then go and feed my sheep do you love me yes then feed my sheep they have this really intimate encounter Jesus says you're not a fisherman you're a shepherd You are called to lead God's people to good pasture. You are still called Peter. And some of us know 
that God has called us to a specific and a significant role. We have heard words from the Lord spoken over our lives. We've had dreams and visions. And yet maybe for some reason or other we have lost sight or given up. And maybe even because we think that what we've done, our sin, the mistakes we've made has disqualified us. Maybe we've lost the plot or done something stupid or just made a bad choice. Maybe we've even deliberately turned our back on God for a season. And we find it really hard to even think about metaphorically looking Jesus in the eye. Let alone living up to the calling that we know he's put on our lives. I know people like that. I know people who I know have a calling on their life. And yet the choices they've made kind of rule them out of being, of really getting in that, really getting into the flow of that. That's a real shame. I just really believe that if God has called us, it doesn't really matter what we've done, Jesus can still encounter us. And here's this picture of Jesus graciously restoring Peter, who goes on to be this incredible leader. So we've got these three disciples. We've got Cleopas and his buddy. We've got they just needed the scriptures explaining to them. They needed to kind of understand what was going on. And as that happened, and as they spent time in relationship with Jesus, they were lit up again, transformed. We've got Thomas, who had these genuine, heartfelt questions from a place of grief and pain. And Jesus is able to meet him and be so gracious in the way that he responds. And we've got Peter who's had this kind of total public denial. I mean, it's one thing to sin in secret, (laughs) but Peter's kind of messed up in public where everyone can see. And Jesus so graciously restored him. And in each case, the risen and resurrected Jesus encounters them. And do you know that same risen and resurrected Jesus is here today? And he longs to encounter us. So why don't we stand together? And whatever's going on with you, whether you can specifically identify with one of these guys and their story, or whether it's something else, Jesus is here, and he's ready to meet with us. So I'd love us just to close our eyes and just uh, maybe open our hands again and just to acknowledge his presence and welcome him here. And if there's something that if there's something that he wants to do, if if you already know that Jesus is talking to you, then just acknowledge that. And Holy Spirit, we bless you and thank you and we welcome your presence here again. You're incredible. And you love to encounter your people with your presence. And we welcome you to do that now. Would you move among us, Holy Spirit, and would you come? And the things that I've spoken about, if there's something that you really want to do, would you just take it deep into our hearts? Deep down. More than just words, but presence. We thank you for those disciples and their genuine encounters with you. We thank you for the words of life and encouragement that you speak over each and every one of us. We thank you for the promises and the dreams. 
And we also thank you for your gracious response to our questions and our pain. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence now. And here, in this place, would you come and encounter your people again?